Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest with myself, Gareth Green, and my co-host, Andrew Raphael. You yeah. want to say hello, Andrew? Hi. <laughs> Andrew, that feel's weird. Andy. <laughs> and, and it's because my name comes up on the Zoom thing, doesn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> so we'll be running a handful of episodes on our channel over the next few weeks, beginning with a look at an apocalyptic wasteland ravaged by death and destruction, where an individual's basic needs are scrapped over tooth and claw. But that's enough about the coronavirus, as we'll be talking about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Roll the trailer. The world had been through a trial by fire, and only the greatest warriors and their deadliest enemies emerged from the flames. Who are you? Nobody. I'm still. I can feel it. The dice are rolling. <laughs> he was the one they called mad. But he's just a raggedy man. But to those whose lives hung in the balance... Where's the waiting ones? Waiting for what? Waiting for you. He was the one they called hero. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Dying times here. Now, Mad Max is back in Beyond Thunderdome. In the conclusive definition of life imitating art, Mel Gibson returns as Mad Max Rokotansky. Such a stupid surname, and they never mention it at all for any of the films, I don't think. Maybe perhaps the first one. I was going to say, if it's going to appear anywhere, it would be in the first one, but I don't think it's actually mentioned ever again. I mean, that's the first one in a nutshell, really, isn't it? It's never mentioned again, apart apart from the two shots in Mad Max 2. Yeah. Never referenced again. Well, we will say that Mel Gibson returns as Mad Max, a drifter more mullet than man, cursed to wander the irradiated wastelands in search of a woman he can call sugar tits. (laughs) Tina Turner joins him as Anti-Entity, the ruler of Bartertown, a small trading community whose conflicts are solved with explicit homosexual wrestling matches. Two men enter, one man leaves. Who knew that the clothing choice of the apocalypse would be leather bondage and assless chaps? (laughs) (laughs) So um, I guess we should really set up about what we're doing here now. We are returning after what is it two years now yeah two years two years so as mentioned earlier we're going to be running a few episodes where unlike best forgotten movies where we actually chose movies that we thought were going to be like reassessed or anything like that by ourselves and we would say whether or not it is something worth watching we're just going to be talking about what we're watching at the moment whatever we've been viewing during quarantine it's a quarantine stream as you might call it andrew (laughs) he just called you andrew again what's going on (laughs) it's this name thing loretta (laughs) Loretta Green, who'd have thunk? <laughs> so, yeah, so I would say that you can expect a few episodes. It's not going to be like Best Forgotten Movies, but we're just going to be really just shooting the shit about films. Yes, yeah, so it's basically the same thing. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Nothing has changed. Well, the so, only main uh, difference is that we're over Zoom, but yeah. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Person. We haven't seen each other in years. No. Nope. It is weird to get back to this, isn't it? It's, it, it, yeah. it's like it, it feels all new again. Yeah. Hopefully it'll be better than that Ants episode. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if you're new to this, don't ever listen to that one. It's terrible <laughs> in comparison. I think we don't get good until about eight episodes in. <laughs> Revolver. I think Revolver is the episode yeah. where we suddenly started to kick up a notch. Well, I think, it's that, I think that's when we dropped the um, talking, going through the whole film. Yeah, that, that was an episode where our format was broken by that film. Yeah. 
Yeah, we could not speak about it on a narrative through line. We we didn't know what the narrative through line was, so we just decided let's go a bit freer at this. And this is how we're going to be talking about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome today. Well, Mad Max Three, as it's known in Australia. Oh, it's got the three on the end. Yeah, it's just called Mad Max Three in Australia. Oh, right, that's news to me. I learned that on IMDb last night. (laughs) (laughs) The more you know. And also going back to the uh, Rockatansky or whatever it's called, uh, the anti-entity. She's not known by entity at all in the film. She's just known by anti. So that's another one where no one mentions the surname. Yeah. This was a film that I've seen a few times over the years. I, I keep going back to it. I think it was the first Mad Max film that I had seen as well. So I've always yeah, same, got same. a um, I've always got an affinity towards it. I've always got like a, a warm feeling about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. But watching it again as well, and with a bit more of a critical eye this time as I'm taking notes in my notebook, I, I did realise as well that, that she's not referred to as anti-entity throughout the entire film. No, just anti. Ah, it's another one of those George Miller quirks, like a doof warrior <laughs> in um, Fury Road, is that he gives these characters these fantastic names that you never hear. Yeah, everyone's pretty anonymous in the wasteland. They, they are in terms of name, but they always look distinctive. Yeah, I suppose because it is... Uh, I mean, I'd say maybe in this one and the first one are the exceptions, but definitely in terms of two and four, it's such a visual piece that you don't need to know the names because you could turn the sound off and you would follow it. So mentioning someone's name is probably too many words to have in the film. In many ways, I do think George Miller is clearly a student of silent cinema. He's clearly a student of Buster Keaton and everything like that. It's all visual storytelling. It's all how the camera moves. It's all how everything moves on the camera. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, what do you feel about Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome? How does this sit? Because I've got to say, Andy, this is the film in the series that everybody always refers to as the least favourite, the one that doesn't quite work. How do you feel in, in regards to that? Yeah, I can see why. Because in the one hand, I really like it. And I think it's a really smart looking film. I mean, it's a it's a huge step and a jump from the first two in, in terms of its like production values and even like the depth that goes into certain things. But at the same time, I feel like after a certain point of time in the film, the, the film starts to get very muddled. Yeah. Because I, I did read yesterday that the Lost Boys part of the film was actually another film that they started that had nothing to do with Mad Max. And then that got retroactively thrown into a Mad Max film. Uh, and you can really tell that that's the case because I don't feel like the children section and the Bartertown Town sections merged particularly well. And also when those two sections merge towards the end of the film, the narrative thread just goes for me. I have no idea what the objective is yeah. for the characters. Like when they break back into Bartertown, I have no idea what they're there for. No. And it feels like there's a scene missing. And I do know that there is a scene missing in between them looking at the, at the Barter Town lights yeah. across the desert and them actually going into Barter Town. There is a scene there that's apparently on the um, Tina Turner music video. There's a shot from it. Oh, right. There's two main deleted scenes that was deleted from the film for running time, and that's one of them. And the other one is a, a dream sequence from Max, I think, concerning his wife and kid. So I feel like that part of the film, it sort of comes back again when the chase starts, but the little bit yeah. where they go from the desert to... Actually, the bit I'd say that the weakest part of the film is a bit where they leave the oasis go to the desert and then go into Barter Town. Yeah. So from that point until they get on the train, that's very muddled for me. I agree with you. I do actually like this stuff in regards to the kids when Mad Max comes to interact with all of the Lost Boys. And I do like that section of the film, but it does feel like it is an entirely different film. Yeah. Either you've got to bring that in earlier 
or yeah. is it something that you drop entirely? Yeah. I do like Mad Max interaction with the kids. It's very Peter Pan. But you're right, it does feel like it is a tonal change halfway through the film. Yeah, and you get the feeling like it, that nothing's developed quite enough because it's not devoting its time to one thing or the other exclusively. And and I think the pacing suffers for that as well because for a film called Beyond Thunderdome, the Thunderdome is done and dusted quite early on in the film, really. Yeah, it is. It's a shame that there's only one Thunderdome match as well. Yeah. And I'm not sure whether it's because George Miller was only handling the action sequences at that time and all the dramatic sequences were the responsibility of his friend, uh, was it George Ogilvy? Yeah, George Ogilvy. What action there is, is very good, but it's probably the the most action-like Mad Max film, probably next to the first one. Yeah. And that's mainly for the budget. But I think it's probably down to just George Miller's lack of interest and just lack of time to invest in the in the film because of what was going on around you know behind the scenes yeah and I, yeah and i feel like what is there is great and i love the thunderdome but it's just done and dusted in the first like 35 to 40 minutes yeah and then you never see it again which is a, a real shame yeah I, I mean i remember watching this film for the first time when i was in actually primary school and the thunderdome is what left the biggest impression on me about this film so much so that i remember forgetting all of the stuff with the lost boys later on yeah, um, yeah, and when I came back to this film, I, it was almost like it was reminding me about what, like I thought, the Thunderdome. Whoa, this is coming really early. I thought this was the end of the film. Yeah, yeah. And then we had the Lost Boys, and I was like, oh yeah. So there's this whole other thing going on. But yeah, I agree. The Thunderdome stuff, it's really well done. I really like the Thunderdome fight, and there's a there's a moment, and I think it's left an impression on a lot of people. We'll go into that later, and it certainly left an impression on me. But I do feel like. It almost needs to be brought in at the climax as well. Yeah, like yeah. Max is captured or somebody's captured and placed in the Thunderdome. And that's the beginning of the big chase is in almost like an Indiana Jones manner. They've got to escape the Thunderdome. Then they get to the train. Then that big chase begins. Yeah, yeah. I think I just often wonder with this film is like, what would it have been like if uh, Byron Kennedy hadn't been killed? Yeah. Um, because I feel like because he got killed at a certain point, like the film had been sort of green lit and they were scouting locations and that's when he got killed in, in the accident. I'd like to know where they were at at that point in time and if anything changed. And obviously something did change because I imagine before Byron's passing that George Miller was going to direct the whole thing yeah. rather than co-direct. Because that, that's always something that's kind of, uh, it's, it's, a, it, it's a bit of a curiosity to have a, a mainstream film be co-directed and intentionally so, because I know there are other films like Fierce Creatures where they got in another director during reshoots and he's, he's in each yeah. credited. So that's one of the only occasions where a, a reshoots director has been actually credited on screen. Yeah, and you can see the difference in terms of the directing styles. They, yeah, yeah. Like in terms of the shot composition, I think George Ogilvy does well enough that the action and the the character stuff, the exposition, you can marry the two up. But in terms of the pacing of those scenes and the movement mm. of them, it's just not there. Yeah, yeah, you can tell there is a slight difference in style. Yeah, but yeah, I, th- I think it's just more. I think it's more down to the the way the script is constructed, really, that that causes the pacing issues because it is, unless you're going from A to B and then back to A but the A and B don't quite merge successfully. Yeah. And I think that goes for the character arcs as well. Like I, I think that the big glaring one for me is the master because his character completely changes in the second half of the film. Yeah. He... Based on what he was at the start of the film. Like he becomes some sort of like friendly old sort of dwarf man <laughs> with a yeah. little bowler hat. 
who's dressed like an accountant. Yeah, and at the start of the film, he's like basically the main bad guy. <laughs> so Exactly. I didn't really get that. I felt like I blinked and I missed something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some weird connective tissue thing going yeah. back from the, the oasis to the barter town and then the chase that just isn't there. And yeah, it gets really confusing. But then as soon as you get to the chase, it's kind of, oh, it's all okay again because the chase is so good. That I don't the chase is brilliant. So much. I mean, to be honest, I, I only watched Mad Max 2 last week. Well, not for the first time, but I watched it last week and then watched this yesterday. And I'm going to be quite controversial. I actually genuinely think the chase at the end of Thunderdome's better than the one in 2. And I don't even think that's just to do with the budget. I think it's for what's actually happening and, and just the general location they've got the kind of uniqueness of it being on the train yeah going back to it i feel like the seeds for fury road are more sown in this film than than two even though it kind of takes inspiration from two with the trucks i think aesthetically it's closer to thunderdome absolutely you've already hit the nail on the head in terms of what i was going to lean into as some of my favorite aspects of this film and one thing I will absolutely agree with you is I, I do love the chase scene at the end of Road Warrior, and I can see exactly why it is the iconic chase scene that it is known as now. However, I do agree with you that this one, it does take it a step further. If the film yeah, around yeah. it had been better, yeah, I can see yeah. how this would be regarded in the same in the same breath almost. Also, I agree as well in terms of the influences of Fury Road. They seem to be more rooted in Thunderdome than they do in The Road Warrior. And I do feel like for George Miller, perhaps it's the feeling of a missed opportunity when he does look at Beyond Thunderdome, because you've almost got like the war boys in this film as well. Oh, yeah, I was going to say the, the, the visual appearance of one of yeah. the characters. I actually wrote in my notes, prototype war boy. <laughs> yeah, ex exactly. And I, I do feel like it's almost like there are some threads that are picked directly out of Thunderdome and expanded on so much better in Fury Road. I mean, from my point of view, the, the whole series is a, a, in a constant form of evolution. And Thunderdome is part of that evolution. It's just because I think how certain elements are joined together or not successively joined together, it does come yeah. across as looking a little bit half-baked, but not by much. But I feel like because of the children element and because of, I think when it was released in the States, it was like a PG-13. Yeah. It's always been looked on as the Mad Max series being Hollywoodized. Although in certain aspects, probably no more so than Fury Road because... I was writing my notes as well that I think the thing that, that I like about this film, and I think that this film does better than Fury Road, is that Australianness, which I think, apart from a couple of the side characters, uh, like the side villain characters and Immortan Joe, just because they probably are, you know, they're probably played by Australian and New Zealand actors, the actual Australianness of it, and because it's not shot in Australia in the first place, it, it seems to go, which is a bit of a shame because I think that yeah. was a, a very strong identity that set it apart from a lot of other things. And that, that's probably one of my one of my only sort of minus points for Fury Road is that it doesn't embrace that kind of thing, or it's much more downplayed. I suppose it's a bit like the um, the Asianness of uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. That's kind of downplayed yeah. in comparison to the original. Yeah, it is, yeah. But uh, yeah, that's the one thing I really do like that about this film, and especially when it goes into sort of like the Lost Boys, it does feel very Australian because obviously all the kids are Australian and everything. So 
it has a much greater sense of identity in that sense. Yeah, and it has a, a greater sense of location, but it also mm. allows you to instantly recognize just how things have devolved in Australia. Yeah. I mean, have they devolved or is this just a couple of years down the line? <laughs> that's, that's one thing that I will say about the Lost Boys characters. Because of the language that they've created and the situation surrounding them, I almost feel like they are several generations down the line after this apocalypse rather than the kids of the people that were on the plane that crashed. Yeah. Because yeah. They, they've developed this entire language and this entire civilization almost. But it feels like something that we would see in Cloud Atlas that is based like thousands of years in the future after the apocalypse. I think also the way that these two elements, the elements of the Oasis and Barter Town, don't quite gel together. I, yeah. It gives me far too many questions for both sides because the way that the film geographically places the two locations, they don't seem that far apart. No. Why has no one from Bartertown ever come across this oasis for a start? And because there's a big fuck off 747 in the sand as well. So it's not as, you know, it's pretty fine. <laughs> yeah. So, and, you know, like when, why, why is, um, Someone like Jebediah never gone there. He would have been able to have seen I, that, it. That was the one I was going to mention is Jebediah. He, he has a plane. Surely he's uh, traveled over this. I mean, Jebediah is a whole confusion for me anyway, because... How does he relate to the character in Road Warrior? Well, that, he's, he's not, though, isn't he? He's supposed to be a completely different character, but I feel like they shot themselves into the foot there because of what they... I mean, obviously, they want to use Bruce Spence because Bruce Spence is great. But why is he playing another flying character? <laughs> it's just... His character is so similar in so many ways but the fact that he's a different character it blows my mind exactly and the thing is in road warriors he's given more time to breathe as well in this film we can only identify him as being one bruce spence and two he flies yeah <laughs> he's got big eyebrows this time <laughs> <laughs> exactly and then it expects us to think he's a completely different character as well how many people are living in this apocalypse that look like bruce spence and on a plane <laughs> Maybe there's some strange cloning backstory. <laughs> and they're all pilots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he always reminds me of the zombie version of Hugh Laurie. <laughs> it's like if yeah. Hugh Laurie had been, been bitten. Yeah. I know that we've been critical of the film so far, but I think both of us agree as well that this is not a film without its merits. And I think I'm going to lean into that for a while as well. Oh, but... no. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it's not... because I'd, I'd seen Mad Max 2 like, just the week before. And obviously that's the one that's, in terms of the original films, is the one that's held in the highest regard. And I think the beauty of Mad Max 2 is its simplicity. Yeah. There's very little to it story-wise. It's just all about putting the characters in that particular situation and seeing how they deal with it. And that's all there is to it. And that's why it yeah. works so well. Whereas I feel with this, they're trying to go a little bit more complex and there's almost like too many ideas in there that they can't develop to their fullest. Because really, you could just center a whole Mad Max film around Bartertown. You don't need the children. And again, you could do a whole Mad Max film about the children. Really, there's two films. Yeah. It just feel like two films. And this it's a shame because it's like there's, there's two really good films here that really shouldn't be together. <laughs> I suppose the, the issue that I have with Beyond Thunderdome is more so the potential that is within this script. Yeah, the elements yeah. don't come together to make something that meets its full potential. It's like the it's so it's less than the sum of its parts. It's less than the sum of its parts. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. There was something the other day about that, and and this with Fury Road, there's still a lot of there's still quite a, a proportion of people who just aren't on board with that film for yeah. whatever reason. But in terms of it being a fully developed Mad Max film, I don't think the others can really touch it for yeah. how it goes about what it wants to achieve and how it achieves it 
even Mad Max 2, I, I, I feel like there's Mad Max 2 is obviously very influential and they did so much with this year, the no money that they had, yeah. even compared to the first one. But in terms of an actual film and, and how it deals with its characters and how everything connects and is put together, obviously they've got more resources on the, on the, on the fourth one, but the way it all comes together is, is just so much more satisfying than even the second one. It is, yeah. And everything just seems so much more developed. But yeah, what I was going to say with the Fury Road is that because it had such a long gestation period, yeah, you know, over like twenty odd years, and the fact that they storyboarded the whole thing, you know, the fact that we've got this Furiosa film, which was pretty much written at the same time because they wrote this like all these backstories for these characters mm-hmm. and their own scripts and things, and there's such a huge backlog of material from that project, you don't quite get the feeling with Thunderdome you feel like it's they've got the money and they've got all these concepts but it feels like a bit of a mad scramble yeah to get something together and because of you know all the behind the scenes and the fact that there's two directors and all these other things and I imagine some of the concessions they would have had to have made as well because it was the first American funded Mad Max film such as having someone like Tina Turner and and having her songs in it and you know there's so many things that I would imagine would have maybe slightly compromised the film and I imagine them pushing for a a PG-13 rating as well. <laughs> I do feel that Tina Turner works in this film. Oh, she does. She's I... brilliant. Every time she's on screen, it pops. And even when she, but especially when she gets involved in the action at the end. I mean, I imagine she is studio man. I, I, I don't know. I've got some weird sort of shh, shh. I've got some, I've, <laughs> I've got the spirit of, I've got Sean Connery infiltrating me. But uh, no, I think. you got uh, Sean Connery infiltrating you. Infiltrating me, yeah. <laughs> He's down my back passage. He's poking you with his Walter PPK. <laughs> Well, this golf club, actually, but yeah, uh, that's probably more realistic. But yeah, she's definitely studio mandated, but it couldn't have worked out better. She's all in as well. She is all in. To, to say as well that she shaved her head for the role. Oh, yeah, I was reading that yesterday. I was like, did she shave her head for that? Because it looks, it goes quite far back. Like the wig starts quite late. Yeah. Then I was reading it late and I was like, oh, yeah, that that is very committed, especially the fact that around this time in her career, she was pretty much relaunching herself. I think um, just prior to her doing this film, Private Dancer would have come out, which was a huge comeback because she'd sort of been in the wilderness for quite a few years in the late 70s and early 80s. And obviously this is a, a big springboard yeah. for her as well, like commercially. But yeah, that, that's real commitment, especially for the fact that she probably would, would have probably ended up wearing wigs for her shows <laughs> and whatever, you know, for probably some time afterwards. So yeah, no, I think that part of the film works really well and i i think the film works so well for the first 40 minutes yeah and yeah it's when it's when the gulag starts that you start it starts to become a little bit disjointed Mm -hmm. but then the lost boys section is really good in of itself it's just they don't join together no no they just don't meld in the middle but i think what we were going to mention as well like there's there's two films that i that both aspects of the film have completely been influenced by yeah and we were talking about this uh, last night. The most obvious one is the Barter Town section. It's pretty much wholesale nicked for Waterworld. Yeah. And especially all the eight hole stuff. I-, I was even mentioning to you last night the set piece that is Auntie's Quarters. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that set is lifted wholesale for. Uh, isn't it the set that drifted out to sea? The one that had the dead bodies on it in Waterworld? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Pretty it much is, the yeah. same, just on water. Uh, I, I wouldn't well, surprise I, you if I, they didn't like just nick the steel and, re- and redo it. As I said to you, I do feel like the production designer on Waterworld just simply pointed at Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome and said, yeah. like that, but wetter. 
Yeah, yeah. And and it, it really does shine through. And the other example is one that we both had the same idea and didn't speak to each other about it, but I think it's obvious nope. and clear as day within the film that yeah, the Lost yeah. Boy section, we keep referring to it as the Lost Boy section, it is very yeah. Hook, a very yeah. Steven Spielberg Hook. And it's undeniable, yeah. especially the moment where they have him hanging upside down. They're all asking him to fly. And I actually wrote in my notes during this section of the film, does this do the Lost Boys better than Hook? Because in a lot of ways it does, especially from a, um, a production standpoint. Because I know obviously Spielberg is on record for being rather harsh on Hook and criticizing it for basically looking like it is on a soundstage. And whilst I do yeah. like the soundstage elements, especially when it comes to the, the Lost Boys hideout in that film, part of me goes, surely Spielberg must have seen this film because obviously it was yeah. you know out a good few years before you would have started on Hook. I don't understand why they went down the soundstage route and why they didn't go out to somewhere like Australia and film in an oasis, some sort of like glade because it yeah. just it feels so much more convincing to have it in that kind of location. The thing is, I I don't dislike Hook the same no, way no. that Steven Spielberg does. And if Steven Spielberg really detests that film for its shortcomings, and I suppose when you're the director of a film, you do notice the shortcomings more than any audience member would. I, I came across a tweet by a um, a critic called Drew McQueenie. One of the things that he did mention in a tweet was that he has many stories about the making of Hook. And one of the stories that he has is Steven Spielberg didn't get to direct nearly enough of that movie that he wanted to. And some days he didn't get to direct at all. It was a film that was run by the talent agency CAA. Oh, right. He didn't elaborate any further, but that was that. (laughs) And I guess all of a sudden, all of that animosity he has towards that film, it all made sense. That's bonkers. This is at a time when CAA had the biggest grip on the industry. Yeah, I would love to know the stories behind the scenes oh, of yeah. that, that film. That, that sounds absolutely bon- like. Why wouldn't you let the biggest director in the world at that time direct a film? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but that's the story behind it. And, and I do feel like, as you mentioned, Hook, I like a lot of stage element of it because it does feel like, when I think about Peter Pan anyway, I do think of a stage production. However, the Mad Max version of The Lost Boys that we do see, it feels more grounded. It feels like the real version of The Lost Boys. Yeah, it does feel a bit like it's the John Borman, Werner Herzog section of the film. <laughs> like the way it's <laughs> shot, it feels like, like it, it was it the Emerald Forest? Especially the, the, especially the shot where um, Mel Gibson has like the white face. Yeah. It feels very like that kind of thing. And I've, I've got to say... I know a lot of people regard it as their least favorite Mad Max film. But for me, it's it's not my favorite. I'm, I'm going to, obviously, mm. everything that we've spoken about today, it is not my favorite Mad Max film. It is the first Mad Max film I've seen, as, um, as I did mention in the intro. It's not my least favorite either. And I would controversially say my least favorite Mad Max film is probably Mad Max. Yeah. It, yeah. It's the one that I've revisited the least, and but it suffers for me because... Growing up, I lived on The Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome. I didn't watch Mad Max until I was nearly 20. And when I did see it, I was actually taken aback by how different it is from those two films. And in a way, as you mentioned about that evolution of films moving forwards, to go backwards from that, it was too jarring for me to really marry those visions up against each other. I can jump from Road Warrior to Beyond Thunderdome and understand that 
uh, jump in the world, but I can't from Mad Max to The Road Warrior. They feel like yeah, completely yeah. different films to me, completely different worlds. And as such, I've never really seen Mad Max as part of this series, even though it does bear the, the big name. It feels like its own separate entity to me, and as such, yeah, I've, I've never does. really viewed it within this within this canon. And I feel like the original Mad Max is um, a great achievement for what they managed to do. Absolutely. The money that they had, and some of the stuff in that first film is absolutely crazy, and what they could get away with as well. But yeah, I feel like it gets the story going, but in terms of what follows, it has very little to do with how they go about it. And I'm to be honest, I would say George Miller would probably agree with you, yeah, as well, because I know that like making the original Mad Max wasn't particularly like a great experience for him, and I know that he did set out when making Mad Max Two to make a much better film. Yeah. So yeah, and I do feel like just you know, in terms of general audiences, when they think about Mad Max, especially before Fury Road came out, they're immediately going to think either Mad Max Two or Thunderdome. Yeah. They're not really going to start thinking about the first one because the first one just doesn't quite have as distinctive an identity as its sort of two successors. What I'm referring to it is as my least favorite Mad Max film. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad film or badly made in my view or anything like that. I certainly don't agree with that. I just can't see it within this world. The, the, the world in Mad Max, it feels like just a, a very minor extension of the world that we already live in, in, in a way yeah, that, yeah. say, for example, Predator 2 was based like three years in the future from when that came out. Whereas the moment that you see Road Warrior from the first frame, you know what this world is and it's completely different it's completely unique uh so much so that this that film and beyond thunderdome has gone on to influence so much more and i I go far as to say because i wrote this down yesterday as well like in a way both the the second and third film are kind of equally influential and i know a lot of people talk about the second one being probably more influential but i'd say that's probably more influential for low budget movies and b movies because i know after the road warrior came out so many B movies and low budget movies just completely ripped off the Road Warrior. But in terms of like mainstream slash A list movies, I definitely say that Thunderdome was the more influential, especially going from obviously Waterworld's the most obvious example of that. But I feel like other post apocalyptic type films with a big budget look more like Thunderdome than they do the Road Warrior. Yeah. So I do feel that they have equal influence in different areas of film yeah one thing that i will say about the mad max universe in general is that i do think they have lied to us in terms of what the apocalypse will be like uh, because considering the amount of assless chaps that are on display in george (laughs) muller's mad max world not a single person seems concerned about the availability of toilet roll Honestly, I expect that to be <laughs> currency in the future, considering the way in which we are mad about it now. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest, like uh, if they do, if they uh, do end up making Furiosa, I wonder if that's going to be something that's uh, played upon. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. One last thing that I did want to touch upon as well, myself, is I mentioned earlier that there's a scene within the Thunderdome section of the film that left an impression on me, a moment that left an impression on me, and. Uh, that has to be the moment when Mad Max is fighting against this this beastly man, this hulking individual that's pummeling him at some point. Max manages to overcome him and his helmet comes off and you realise that actually it's this poor, uh, mentally challenged individual and it's actually kind of upsetting. 
I remember when I came to school the next day, like we were all really pumped about when I first saw Mad Max, it was on television and I was in primary school at the time. I watched it that night. And then the next day I went to school, all our mates were talking about having seen Beyond Thunderdome that night. And then one of our friends mentioned, oh, and that bit where his helmet came off and we all went quiet and went, yeah, 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 that bit. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's actually really sad. Yeah. That left an impression on me. Yeah. One of the other things I really liked from the film that I hadn't remembered from before was the the Dr. Dealgood character, who's who's sort of the um, ringleader for the Thunderdome with his sort of, with his his hockey pads on. He looks great. Yeah, he's sort of like the um, prototype <laughs> Crystal Master. <laughs> he is. That's what I love yeah. about George Miller films is all, you get all these like tiny characters that are just instantly memorable the moment that you lay eyes on them. Yeah, and there's, there's so many like Australian actors that he uses as well that are really memorable in the films that you go, oh, I'm sure I've seen him or her in something else. And then you go on their IMDb and it's all Australian films. And I'm like, I'm... Uh, I think there's even a, another character who's the, the, the guy that um, ends up having to hang on to the train to couple them together. Who, that is an amazing, that's yeah, an amazing piece. But I keep thinking I've seen him, but then I was like, no, I've just seen Neil Ince because they look very similar. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to say, he has the best denouement of all of the bad guys in the film. Yeah. <laughs> the hand reaching out of the uh, the wreckage. Isn't that the other character though? Oh, sorry, I thought you mentioned him hanging from the train. No, no, not hang. No, the one who has to, you know, when he has to sort of couple the, the back car, the car and the other car together. Ah, yes, the one that's holding it together with his body. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry, my apologies. I, I thought I was talking about the one that was hanging off the train that gives the finger at the end. The other guy's great as well. I, mean, I think he's a metal singer. <laughs> he, he looks it. <laughs> yeah, I think he's called Angry Anderson or Anderton. That, that's his actual credited name. That feels like a Mad Max name in general, doesn't it? Yeah. I did have another couple of questions from this film. Um, one of my other ones is, um, how did the monkey find him? Who knows? That was the question that jumped at me the moment the monkey turned up. I do feel like they're trying to connect up the two script ideas and it's a bit yeah. half-assed to try and connect those two things up together. Uh, the other thing I wrote in my notes as well, from the very first appearance of, of the Lost Boys when they were sort of backlit, I wrote in my notes, special appearance from Star Trek V. <laughs> Obviously, nice. Star Trek V was much later, but I feel like that's very, very influenced by the Road Warrior and Thunderdome. Mm-hmm. And that backlit section where the, where the kids are coming out from the, yeah. from the sort of summit of the, the, of the desert dune, um, it just looked exactly like the um, Uhura dance in Star it Trek V. <laughs> <laughs> and I could, I could not think about it. Because I think I've seen the horror dance so many, probably more so than this film. Like it's, I've seen not, not just the horror dance, but probably Star Trek V. I've probably seen it slightly more times than this, and I've probably saw yeah. it more times as a kid. So going back to this, watching Thunderdome, I can't not think about that scene <laughs> when they appear. <laughs> and if anybody wants to listen to us talk about Star Trek V, do feel free to listen to our Star Trek episode on Best Forgotten Movies that was recorded how many years ago? <laughs> oh, probably about four. It's about four years ago. Yeah. yeah, it would have been about four years yeah. ago that we recorded that episode. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's on our Best Forgotten Movies channel. Yeah, Star Trek V, oh so very tired. <laughs> so Andy, I've got to say now, we're starting to wrap this up. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any any further li- little insights that you would like to impart on us? Well, I've got two actually. Uh, one, 
up until about um, two hours ago, I always thought that the guy that was playing uh, the master of Barter Town to be Billy Barty, and that's not the case. I just generally thought it was Billy Barty, and I have no idea why. I think maybe because of the name Barter Town, but it's actually his friend, um, Angelo Rosito, who's actually one of the original cast members of Freaks from 1940. Oh, right. Uh, and it's not Billy Barty at all. And I don't know why. Todd Browning film Freaks. Yeah, and I don't know why I ever thought it was Billy Barty, because he doesn't look like Billy Barty, and he doesn't no. sound like Billy Barty. So I don't know where that's come from. But the, the other thing... <laughs> Just the last thing to mention from me is that I think my favorite line in the film is when they're standing on the top of the plane and one of the one of the kids goes, uh, the wind is up our ass, Captain. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Oh, and I have to mention probably my favorite gag in the film has to be Captain Walker, Mrs. Walker, as he's looking through the uh, the viewfinder. Yeah. Uh, all of yeah. the uh, the pictures. Um, one of them is of, of a pilot, and they say Captain Walker, and then it goes to the next slide, and it's like a cabaret dancer. They say Mrs. Walker. Yeah, it's like a yeah. Las Vegas, <laughs> <laughs> Las Vegas dancer, isn't it? That is my favorite gag in the film. It gets me every time. Mrs. Walker. <laughs> it, I think it would have worked better if, uh, like you said before, if if it, if the generations have been way more removed because it doesn't feel. I don't think it quite works in the time frame. In a way, I, th I feel like that's an issue that's come out of the fact that the very first Mad Max is based in a civilized, like a society much like our own, only a few steps yeah, yeah, towards yeah. that apocalypse. In a way, that's tied them too close. If if we didn't have that film, they would have more space, really, to go a bit crazier with how far into the future this is. In a way, I think Fury Road has actually yeah. completely done away with the idea of Mad Max having any connection to um, a society much like our own now. And I think Thunderdome was the first one to directly reference any kind of nuclear yeah. thing as well, because the, the first two don't mm -hmm. at all. It's more like a society breaking down rather than anything war-related. So I've got to say, with, with all of yeah. that said, Andy, is Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, is it a film that you would recommend? Oh, definitely. I mean, if, if you're um, someone, say, like a, a casual viewer who's only seen Fury Road, I think they would definitely get a lot out of this film and they could probably see like the seeds being sown for the like the um, gestation and, and sort of development yeah. of that film. Because I do feel like a lot of the ideas that came to fruition in Fury Road started in Thunderdome. But yeah, I definitely feel like if you're, if you're going to watch like the older Mad Max films, if you haven't already, I mean, obviously the Road Warriors are a must, but I definitely give this one a go as well. Because I mean, it's probably not quite as cohesive, but I think it's just as entertaining in its own right, even if it doesn't quite work. I feel like I've been far more critical on this film on this watch, having Fury Road to compare to and contrast now. Whereas before, it was just simply Beyond Thunderdome and The Road Warrior that I always bounced off each other. And it was lesser of those two, but I still very much enjoyed everything that Beyond Thunderdome has to offer. Yeah. And this time, I think the cracks have shown more just simply because Fury Road has been such a big part of my life since it came out. Yeah, yeah. It's probably my favorite film of the last 10 years, hands down. But I will say that even so, Beyond Thunderdome is a film that it still makes me feel warm inside having watched it. It still gives me that nostalgia endorphin release. And I do think it has a lot of great ideas that never quite reached their full potential, but are there and are entertaining nonetheless. And George Miller's visual style is still on display, mostly in the action scenes for obvious reasons. But that kind of silent era cinema visual storytelling is all still there throughout the film that I really 
always respond to with George Miller films. And I still think it's absolutely yeah. worth the time of day. Every Mad Max film is worth the time of day. But to refer to it as the least favourite or the worst of the Mad Max films, I think it does it a disservice. I think it's still very good for what it is. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think also as well, it is a, a really strange thing to say, but it probably has one of the best uh, tie-in movie title songs. Absolutely. Oh, my God. Absolutely, right? Having Tina Turner involved in this film was um, a plus in quite a lot of ways because, yeah, she completely nails a part, which is great because, uh, you know, when they do this a lot, it doesn't really work. But this is one of the rare instances rare instances when it does work but the fact that she provides we don't need another hero as well which like when jess was watching it last night with me she was like oh is this song from this and i was like yeah because obviously it's you know internationally recognized song and yeah it's just a great way to end the film it's quite funny though when when the film starts though because because there's the other song and it's it's such a um a different way to open a mad max film because i wrote my first thing i wrote down in my notes is um the eighties have arrived to Mad Max. Yeah. <laughs> so it's probably the most eighties Mad oh, Max yeah. film easily. Because I do know that the uh, the title music by Morris Jar was replaced at the last minute by that as well. So I did not know that. I think apparently, I think his original. I think there's one of those ones. You know when you can buy like the full length scores from like Mail Order. Yeah, I think his original title's music's on there. It might be interesting to try and dig that out at some point. I guess. We both very highly uh, recommend this film, despite its flaws. We have spoke about its flaws today. But I will say that, yeah, it does sound like the two of us, we would still very much recommend this film. Yeah. yeah. And I guess that would be it for today's episode, really. Mm-hmm. How does it feel to be back, Andy? How does it feel to be uh, talking movies again? As if we haven't been in the meantime. Yeah, it, feel, it feels good. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, because of the lockdown, we've not spoken loads, probably more than I would have wanted to i mean i don't know why because zoom is so good i don't understand why i've not used it before for this kind of thing anyway today's podcast sponsored by zoom oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be honest pretty much everyone's podcast is sponsored it, by it zoom is, at yeah. the moment skype's just sat there like what the fuck guys <laughs> <laughs> but um but yeah th- th- this is the very first time we've done anything because it's, it's strange because so many podcasts are made like this yeah. anyway there's a Bond one that I listen to that's like this but we've always done our podcasts um, in the same room um, and it's kind of strange that I think maybe it's because technolo- like, technology's got way better that it doesn't feel like but it doesn't feel much different no it doesn't I have to say I've really enjoyed this today if we can keep at this and do this I- I'll be I'll be very happy I've very much yeah, enjoyed yeah. this um, and I will say that we will be back soon I think we're going to be releasing this as a weekly episode uh, series but we will be back soon mm. and uh, next time we'll be looking at Ridley Scott's Hannibal so make sure that you've watched that before the next podcast is released that sounds like we're talking about some sort of growth <laughs> we're looking at Ridley Scott's oh, no. angry Hannibal come and look at my Hannibal <laughs> it's growling Hannibal don't get too close it'll chew your face off oh god but until then it's uh, bye from <laughs> myself Gareth I don't know why it said my name then. It's bye from me, Loretta. Loretta. Yeah, it's bye from me, Loretta. And uh, bye from me, Andy. Uh, thanks for listening, guys.